the authoritarian structure runs on an idea of hierarchy where there's a contest for domination that settles your place in the hierarchy. And what they saw during the primary is that Trump was, uh, by establishing himself as a winner in sort of argumentative sparring and attacks, um, he was sort of ranking, he was positioning himself as the top dog in all these contests so that he was going to be the top dog of the tribe. And then, in fact, what he what they think, well, what he says goes. Hey, it's me, Chance, once again for Punk Journalism. And thanks for checking out my conversation with bestselling author Aaron James as we discuss his 2016 book, Assholes, A Theory of Donald Trump. You can also listen to our previous chat on the predecessor to that book called Assholes, A Theory. James is a professor of philosophy at UC Irvine. Visit punk-journalism.com to see everything I've done so far, including podcasts and blogs. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay current with what I've got coming up. Finally, subscribe to Punk Journalism on iTunes and rate and review the show. I don't ask for anything other than that, so if you like what I'm doing and you appreciate my work, that would be a great way of repaying me. You can also listen to the show on SoundCloud and YouTube. When you wrote that book in 2016, because that's when you wrote it, right, was leading up to the the uh, 2016 presidential election. This was during the, the Republican primary, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. So you must have had a pretty good intuition foreseeing that he was going to win the primary. Otherwise, you might not have been able to count on a very successful work, right? Uh, well, I guess he was. it was – while he was rising um, is when I sort of had the idea of first writing the book. I mean – I, it wasn't my idea originally. Actually, it was the press. It was Doubleday came to me and said, "Oh, look, you got to write a follow-up book." And they said, um, "Just take like the skeleton of the old book and and then put in the new examples and base it around Trump." And I thought that wasn't interesting enough for mm. it to be novel enough. Okay. But what I thought was, um, but then I really started watching. You know, early on, Trump when he's especially when he started um, making references to the use of violence against outsiders. I thought, wow, that, that that right away suggested like a really fundamentally different kind of politics, more authoritarian style of politics. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, um, so that goes back to sort of deeper philosophical issues about authoritarianism versus democracy. And Hobbes is as the sort of most famous authoritarian and Rousseau is the sort of early Democrat in sort of modern philosophy. And then I thought, um, okay, so that's a real philosophical book. But then timing wise, um, I was still hoping that that Trump wouldn't get the nomination. I was still writing, so I thought I'll write a small R Republican book. Yeah, uh, that's aimed toward um, GOP voters, towards everybody, but with GOP voters in mind, especially sort of drawing from assumptions about the republic and republicanism that they could, in principle, accept, and then see a problem with nominating Trump because he's really sort of fundamentally it's very contradictory. Yeah, right. So he's just not a – he doesn't believe in the republic. He's not mm -hmm. a republican in the small r yeah. sense. And I, so I wanted to make that point and make it really clearly. Um, and I was hoping Trump wouldn't get the nomination because what I thought was if he does get the republican nomination, the GOP nomination, then basically it's a coin toss between the two-party nominees. Almost any elections are divided by such close margins historically now um, – given polarization, et cetera, that I thought yeah. someone that dangerous shouldn't get that close to the highest office in the land, most powerful position in the world. So I thought I was hoping that they would, the GOP would come to their senses. I'm, you know, um, sort of the way the never Trumpers, you know, did, they, they had similar reactions, but, um, 
alas. <laughs> well, and that's that's something that's so concerning about about his base, not even necessarily his base, but people who get so swept up into an ideology in general is is they're willing to overlook, and you point this out in your book, uh, the the things that contradict what should be their fundamental principles. And as long as, as it's done in the name of what um, kind of solidifies the the talking points that they are in favor of, they're willing to turn a blind eye to it. And, you know, you mentioned in the book, like when you consider how he's encouraged harm to be done to those who disagree with him at rallies and whatnot, it's it's pretty fair to say that he is mimicking the same behavior as fascists and authoritarians. And he's, I mean, he said before that he would take Saturday Night Live off the air if he could and calls everybody that disagrees with him fake news. Um, and so, I mean, it, this really does, you know, contradict the idea of what small R republicanism ought to be and, and upholding the values of freedom of speech and freedom of, of, of expression and the Constitution, which in any other case, these folks really do seem to, to hold on very dearly these principles. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is that uh, we're pretty forgiving when somebody's doing things that we – that. Um, advances our sort of political goals, the thing, the direction we think society should go. We think, okay, you know, maybe that's not fully right, but all right, under the circumstances, it's sort of the lesser evil or the, or maybe necessary under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think that, that everybody does that, but I think, um, but now, and then I think maybe to a more surprising degree than we thought, uh, but that's, Something that became clear that became clearer to me after writing the book, which I you know wasn't ha- wasn't clear at the time, was that um, for GOP voters that's not re- totally what they were doing. It wasn't just that they thought, okay, yeah, we've got our small R Republican principles, but and this guy's violating them, but because um, we've got all these assholes in power and a corrupt asshole system, um, you know, um, we've got to like bring order somehow. And then, so that's just necessary, you know, like a, a kind of, as an exceptional kind of thing. That's the way I treated them in the book. And I think that turns out to be like a not quite right because I think what became clear is that most of the Republican party, I mean, a lot of people left, um, um, a lot of sort of more elite never Trumper types just left, um, or declared opposition to Trump, but like a huge, huge chunk of the rest just decided, no, we're fine with this. In other mm-hmm. words, they ne- it's not that they ha- they were willing to accept violations of their own principles. They just it just clarified that they never had the Republican principles in the first place. So take rule of law. Uh, rule of law that's a fundamental principle of a republic. You know we're ruled by laws and not by particular men. Like and laws apply to everyone, right? Um, um, including a president, including you know this, this isn't that's the fundamental difference between a monarchy and, and a republic. Um, is you know uh, a monarchy is just ruled by a king. A king's arbitrary will sets what we what we have to do on pain of being you know punished, etc. Um, but in a republic, no um, laws apply to everyone, including the highest rulers, and everyone is held accountable by those laws. And there's a you know a process for changing the laws, interpreting the laws, applying the laws, etc. Okay, so that's a fundamental republican principle. I mean, that's just rock bottom stuff. You know, like stuff that. The American founders were fighting for as against um, the British king, you know, stuff against the French revolutionaries were fighting against as against the, the monarchy and aristocrats, right? Just ba- rock bottom um, part of sort of the democratic republic revolutions. 
Okay, so, but it turns out that I don't think that's now what the current GOP constituents think when, when they think rule of law. They're, in fact, because they're totally fine with um, Trump's now repeated and brazen violation of all kinds of laws, all kinds of illegal activity. And it's like, it's not that they think, well, okay, that's necessary under the circumstances. It's rationalization. Yeah, some of it just isn't, obviously isn't necessary. And it's not just like, well, he's an asshole, of course, he's going to break the law. But it, on balance, it's a force for good. They, I think what they think is it's the law doesn't really apply to him conventionally because the real law, the true law is whoever the top, the top mm -hmm. of the authoritarian mm -hmm. hierarchy says um, what they sort of rule. And Nixon um, kind of made that same point when he yeah. was arguing with, uh, with Frost about his yeah, conduct right. and why it was justifiable. So, there's all, so I think what's become clear to me, that's a good point about Nixon and that it wasn't just sort of a convenient rationalization, but there's long, long-standing trend towards a more tribalistic and nationalistic kind of authoritarian uh, thinking in American thought that's kind of emerged and been in tension with the more Republican ideas that were, you know, established at the founding. And those things were never, that's a lot of what that was at stake in the Civil War. It's still what's at stake around a lot of race issues um, because it's white, it's white nationalism or tribalism around sort of white people or people grandfathered into being white, like Ital Italian Americans, you know, get or got counted, you know, originally weren't considered white and then sure. sort of let sure. in. Um, it's it's that the issues go to the, this sort of more authoritarian, tribalistic, in-group, out-group conception of of authority and law. Um, and so I think that's what Trump really embodies. And Trump supporters are just on board with that. They don't think that the law, the law is whatever the sovereign or the, whatever the top dog ruler, warlord, um, tribal head says. It's And so if the conventional rules on the books, like idea of law statutes, enacted statutes, democratic, like, well, no, whatever, those are maybe guidelines or those apply to everyone else. So those apply to people of low rank in the hierarchy. So um, so those are for, you know, certain people. So. The, the authoritarian structure runs on an idea of hierarchy where there's a contest for domination that settles your place in the hierarchy. And what they saw during the primary is that Trump was, uh, by establishing himself as a winner in sort of argumentative sparring and attacks, um, he was sort of ranking, he was positioning himself as the top dog in all of these contests so that he was going to be the top dog of the tribe. And then, in fact, what he what they think, well, what he says goes, right? Um, and then there's people in the legal establishment like um, Bill Barr, you know, Barr, who's come along, who have the same kind of view about things, too. I think I don't think he fundamentally believes in the rule of law or Republican principles. He, he thinks there's a, you know, he thinks sort of white nationalist tribal authority is ultimately yes. what settles the law. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned tribalism. And I think that that this is such a great example of the dangers of of idealism or ideologues and ideology. And you, you, you call another name for ideology is collective bullshitting. And yeah. I think what's so problematic about that is just kind of going back to what you're saying, where people become so steeped in an ideology to the point where it becomes their religion and it's the ends justify the means and that they're willing to, to um, flex the rigidity of these, what should be pretty hard and fast rules for everybody across the board in the name of their ideology, because when it does become so steeped as to where it's almost religion, that that basically surpasses any sort of um, conduct that everybody ought to abide by. And and when you say, you know, when you ask in the book, why do you, why does Trump get to be such an asshole? And he says, 
Well, because I'm a winner, the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Do you think that this persona is genuine or is it a facade or they're kind of varying degrees of both? Because there's a large part of me that believes that as the showman that he is, it's largely by design. What he's doing, the image that he's portraying is this asshole, top dog, alpha male. And I think the same people that fall for this personality, the type, are the same sort of people that really get invested in reality, reality TV without giving it any thought as to how it might be staged to varying degrees. Yeah, I guess there's a lot, there's really a lot to say about this, but just to make the connection with authoritarian thinking in Hobbes, um, uh, the image or projection of power uh, was really important. Um, so, because the function of the sovereign in Hobbes is Thomas Hobbes picture is um, that the sovereign is someone that we agree in order. So, well, a little bit of backstory, the state of nature is, there's, is sort of an anarchic state in which the life of man is nasty, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And all of us uh, without order, civil order, and uh, sovereign provided are, are, you know, stuck in this hellish condition. And so we all have reason to leave that condition if we could, or make sure it doesn't come, we don't slip into it mm -hmm. if we have to. But, but in his picture, in Hobbes' picture, the only way that we can do that if there's a sovereign power that can overawe all of us. So it's not that uh, I'm prone to come after you. It's not that I'm prone to come after you because I'm sort of selfish or greedy or whatever, um, or you're even prone to come after me. It's just that we're both uncertain about whether the other guy is going to come after me. We're distrustful and uncertain. Look, for all I know, you're going to try to take my stuff or kill me in my sleep to take my stuff. And I don't have that assurance, right? And you don't have that assurance. So that puts us in this predicament of thinking like, well, look, uh, of putting, of having a crowd of temptation towards a preventive strike, because why should I wait then for a credible threat of you attacking me to arise? Why don't I, if you're going to get the jump on me while I'm sleeping, why don't I just get the jump on you while you're sleeping? So like and a preemptive case, strike? A, a preventive strike would be the technical. Pre, preemptive, preemption means there's an, there's an established threat. You have credible evidence of I a threat see. and okay. preempt an attack. Um, that's part of international law. That's considered a legitimate um, use of force, but as a form of self-defense. But prevention, which is not legal, that's what the Bush doctrine, by the way, the Iraq war advocated for, preventive strikes. Um, which was before you wait and you attack before a credible threat arises, before a threat becomes credible, before a threat materializes. That's so that's what Hobbes thought we would do in a state of nature. He also thought the international realm was a state of nature. And so the Bush doctrine at the time was, in some sense, advocating a Hobbesian view. But the issue is the uncertainty that we have. And so what resolves that problem of uncertainty for both of us in a state of nature is me feeling assured that that you're scared of the sovereign and you feeling assured that I'm scared of the sovereign. And I might feel that assurance because I'm scared of the sovereign too. And I think, well, this guy's not nuts. He'll be scared of the sovereign too. So the sovereign is just someone who can, in the first sense, has to be somebody who can scare all of us, make us cower in fear, mm -hmm. overwhelm, overwhelm all of us. That's the way I can feel assured you're not coming after me. Because like, a, because if if you do come after me, the sovereign's going to step in and that's going to be awful for you. So I know you're not, not going to take that chance so I can rest easy. I can be in peace. Now, like now, if you think about it, like who's qualified to be this scary person? I mean, mm -hmm. as the, Hobbes also points out, the there's not man. that big. Of, yeah. The strong man, but physically speaking, there's not that big of a difference in our physical strength between human beings. You know, I don't know if men are mainly more stronger than 
well, certain other men, but also other women or but but in generally speaking, as Hobbes points out, there's no one who's so strong uh, that um, they can't be killed in their sleep by a few people joining up on him. You know, a few sure. of us gang up on sure. anyone else and we can take them out. Right. So there's no one who's protected. Right. So the person is the strong man because there's no super no superheroes. Right. Who are just uh, physically invulnerable to enough other people ganging up. So because of our physical equality, rough equality in physical powers and cycle and, and mental powers as yeah. well, um, um, that means that the person who who could be the effective strong man, scary enough person is the person who has the best optics, the person who can sort of is a good bullshit artist, if you want to put it, or who can who can conduct a propaganda campaign so that, you know, maybe aided by religion aided by mysticism, aided by spiritual notions, aided by whatever they can muster to create an image of, um, you know, untouchability of godlike stature. So it's almost cult-like. Yeah. So cult, cult-like tactics, the cult leader is going to be exactly the kind of person who's going to most effectively, mm -hmm. you know, not just cower people with a threat of force, but get into their psyche so that they wouldn't, so they're sort of pacified from within, they're subdued. It's not that they're just waiting for a chance physically speak they physically I know they can take they know they can take that guy out if they just get wait for a chance the the, the secure leader the really effective leader is going to make people think that no you can't do that he's going to present himself as a mortal god as Hobbes puts mm -hmm. it a mortal mm -hmm. god meaning yeah okay mortal but still has this god like stature and sort of untouchable so that you know you wouldn't even it's not that you're waiting for a chance to go after the sovereign it's just you would think you would never really try because why would you trust you know You'd internalize all these like cult-like attitudes, and 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 Hobbes talked about how basically the then forms of propaganda through religious, you know, media would be the exact kinds of things that that they would want, right? Um, and now, um, in later forms of authoritarianism, like more fascistic ones, that's media. The media was always really essential to to this. Like you know, Mussolini famously, Hitler does this. Also, Stalin Stalin does this. They all really ha have kept power, not because they're particularly physically strong, but both because they were psychopathic and willing to do awful things that intimidated their immediate supporters. But they were also able to use the media and uh, and ideology and and frankly just bullshitting, massive bullshitting, even lying, also <laughs> bullshitting as well, um, to sort of. Project and convey an image of their power sure. and untouchability and invincibility toward the masses. Now, like Putin, for example, is like a uh, really successful at this. Even Berlusconi in Italy, a milder version, was really successful in running the media, partly because he had media ownership. Um, this is one of Putin's main uh, techniques for the rise of power: is is manipulating media, and now now doing it in you know the United States and other countries. Um, so, part like media and propaganda and bullshitting and is like goes right to the heart of how authoritarian um, system rulers have to hold hold on to power, both gain power and then keep it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that that's uh, something that what you're mentioning right now is is what's so concerning to me is because people really just seem to forfeit critical thought in favor of this very low consciousness sort of um, act behavior on Trump's behalf and they're really attracted to it. And I think that that low yeah. consciousness is attractive because it doesn't require a lot of critical thought and you can kind of hand the reins over to somebody um, who, and who can uh, basically do your thinking for you. And you say in the book, you say, quote, those with contempt for the existing system 
he offers a disruption. He meaning Trump, the hope of creating yeah. the strong man to order. And it makes me, you know, wonder why people are attracted to this behavior. And you answered that really well um, just now, because as we've seen in the last four years, they obviously are. Um, in your previous book, you mentioned or you asked why are people attracted to blowhards when you were referring to cable news assholes? And if you know anything about or if you, you know, have an understanding about the sort of energies that we have and put off that we know that this is a very low frequency vibration that is easy to be attracted to, but does offer very low consciousness kind of thinking. And, yeah. and what it reminds me of is at the beginning of the book, you talk about how, you know, Donald Trump kind of not so subtly makes remarks about the size of his penis. And you say, what kind of an asshole draws attention to his penis as far as adequacy goes? And he says, a lot of people have laughed at me over the years. Now they're not laughing so much. Never has someone, and then you go on to say, never has someone had a stronger case of their concern of how they appear in front of others. And it's very compensating, like he's, he's making up for something, obviously, a, relentlessly, a relentless need to be seen as superior. And I think that I've, I've seen this often, and I'm sure you have too. There are a lot of people who really are attracted to the type of person who walks into the room and has the attitude that they have the biggest dick out of everybody in the room, or they may just blatantly say it. And those of us who really, you know, put some thought into it and aren't intimidated by that sort of behavior know that they probably don't and they're probably making up for something. But it, it is concerning because you do feel like you can see something very, very plainly and clearly that the other people just can't or they won't. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think that that's, it, it concerns me as far as where we are in history that people are willing to give such a pass as something like that. Yeah, I guess there's a, yeah, a, a couple things. One is just that even from the point of view of a working democracy, there's still a problem of bullshit and bullshitting that get, you know, bullshit that becomes just sort of too widely accepted. It's not criticized. I just wrote a book about money and public finance. And I think the idea of a balanced budget on the public balance sheet is is a, is what Paul Samuelson called a, uh, just a, a, a superstition, like old time religion, but it's like has a deep hold on even democratic thinking. But from a democratic point of view, like point of view, democratic republic, you think it's in, that's a, in principle a problem, right? It's in principle a problem if people are making assumptions that that aren't being subjected to critical scrutiny that and and then they don't they don't really want to, right? Or they're resistant to even understanding how things could be differently, um, even when really important matters um, are, are at stake. Um, so that's like, you can understand from a democratic point of view, like bullshit's a problem, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, um, because it's not, you're not subjecting important things to critical scrutiny to stand the appropriate standards of truth and, and sincerity and, um, and evidence and scientific adequacy and public justification. Yeah. Well, and that's why Trump is, he gets away with spouting off so many platitudes and, you know, Henry Rollins actually calls them bumper right. sticker statements, which are like, Right, but, really yeah, mean. But from an authoritarian point of view, there's not any there's not any loyalty per se to truth or or what's reasonable mm -hmm. or justifiable or evidence because it's more about for well for the authoritarian ruler it's just he's just saying whatever it is he needs to continue to uphold his position of dominance and cow his uh, keep the support of his essential supporters and cow um, you know the larger masses you know um, and prevent opposition and keep support. And he's just saying whatever he says. He says for purposes of 
he speaks for purposes of maintaining power, not because evidence or truth matters at all. And now Trump really embodies that. But there's a different question about why in our even in our current environment, he could be so successful in doing that, um, which we're supposed to be a democracy after all. Right. And, and in some sense, you know, science and, and public reason and justification has, yeah. has been important. But so what but he does along comes along that's really surprising and even shocking is he, he sort of shows that he can blatantly disregard sort of norms of decorum in public speech, like reformative speech, or just well, blatantly fact, let me Let me quote what you say in the book real quick. Yeah, sure. Quote, he's readily forgiven because in their eyes, he's a force for good. The pathological bull, bullshitter isn't necessarily trying to get others to believe anything. He knows that his audience understands the nature of his performance. Yeah, right. So that's actually a little my view about that has shifted a little bit in emphasis because I before I thought, well, people are like, well, yeah, we know he's bullshitting. But the way he's a bullshitter and his getting power is going to be good for the country. Um, that's a kind of way of rationalizing um, or even justifying something that anybody could could could, ex could accept. Um, like, uh, in, you know, that what that people of all political persuasions might in principle go for because, you know, we're dealing with you know, a really imperfect world and political system and stuff like that. So I was being sort of charitable interpreting the Trump supporters at that time and thinking that, well, they're going to just tolerate and forgive a certain amount of, you know, stuff that they know is unacceptable, but it has this larger instrumental justification. That's the way I thought of it. Okay. But I think okay. what I think I, what I think now is true in taking more seriously the, the nature of authoritarian politics, which, you know, I make a lot of in the book, obviously, but the way it works is that, you know, truth has no fundamental relevance or, at all, right? And and the supporters understand that, right? So they it's, it's not that, yeah, he's lying and that matters or he's bullshitting constantly and that matters, but um, it's forgiven because he's for forced for good. It's that, well, no, he, he's maintaining power and that's what you do. He, he's upholding the way things should be thought of and the way things should be said, inc especially including not criticizing him and affirming the the, op, the standard uh, standards of people like me, the supporters, you know, um, and putting that keeping the opposition down, like keeping upholding the hierarchy. In other words, him he's positioning himself high in the hierarchy. He's taking us, his supporters, with him high in the hierarchy, and he's keeping uh, the others, especially the libs, down low in the hierarchy. So that's why when he's owning the libs, or he's lying, or bullshitting, or whatever. That's just him asserting rightful uh, authority, assert, asserting dominance, and that's that they're fine with. That's yeah, that's that's the logic of the whole political game in their eyes, and that's that's what he does so effectively, and that he definitely does it really effectively. But what's really interesting is the way that Trump saw new possibilities with the social media environment to to construct this dominance game that keyed into his supporters, the logic of supporters sort of generally appreciate. And and one way he did that in a way that didn't look like just old time fascism was by sort of being a comedic uh, personality. I think, yeah. I think he's a yeah, really talented, uh, yeah, comedic personality, partly oblivious. He has this, you know, oblivious ass like quality because, but it's partly his timing comedic ability to sort of read an audience and get a rise out of people and be provoke people and, and anticipate um, uh, uh, how people will react. Just like he's comedians say, this guy's like uh, for a stand-up comic, the guy's like insanely good at, at this at this skill. So well, he knows how to play an audience, that's for sure. Yeah, he plays he plays an audience, and he's 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 if not funny because he doesn't really have a sense of humor, but he's extremely amusing. Like mm -hmm. that's why you kind of can't take your eyes off him. 
like you, you want to see his next move. We're all destabilized. What's he going to do next? I mean, he's been this sort of fascinating character. I mean, even people who hate him most are still like hanging on his every word. That's him. That's him winning. You know, Well, that's what he, you kind of describe as the ass clown, isn't it? In a, in a nutshell. Right. So I mean, there was maybe an earlier time in which just being an ass clown would be just a sideshow, like a vaudeville, vaudeville act. And like it'd be sort of lowbrow entertainment. But I think this came up with the social media environment, the change in the rise of social media, like where uh, it, more so than ever, media was not edited. Like so with the the previous sort of TV based or me, uh, news media, for example, before even before the Internet. Well, even while the earlier Internet was happening, you still had the major media outlets editing the content and what they thought was, you know, filtering it through their own norms of democratic acceptability or propriety. Um, civility, et cetera. And they were screening out a lot of other stuff. And then there was stuff going buried on the internet, you know, like going on, you know, these back channels and stuff, but that was, could, could still be seen as marginal. But with the rise of like Twitter and Facebook and other platforms, the media was so-called democratized in the sense that there weren't sort of elite guardians and now sort of, um, and there was a different reward structure. So if you could get attention um, to your likes or tweets, and there's a quantifiable metric like by likes and tweets that would sort of give you credence. And then, by the way, there's algorithms with the emergence of AI on, on in both Google and Facebook, you know, on the different platforms that are accelerating the content that's getting the most attention. And in fact, trying to just running on what gets the most attention. So Trump sees sees that the new logic of the social media age is just what gets attention. That's what uh -huh. monetizes things, right? right? So there's huge economic incentives to get attention and attention is power. Um, regardless of what you're saying, it's still it's power. It can be it can be false. It can be bullshit. It can be true. It can be, <laughs> but it's if it's getting eyeballs, it's power because you're both your your thoughts and our, your personality. You're the center of attention, and well, people are not uh, played that. Yeah, social yeah. media obviously rewards superficial behavior. So I mean, it's not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. So it, it, it rewards it rewards what get just whatever gets attention, and that tends to play to our basic basis. Uh, basicist instincts. So, you know, what outrages us, that gets accelerated mm -hmm. throughout right. the environment. Um, what's extreme, what's what's just uh, really unusual gets accelerated. Um, and the, the platform, social media, are they, that's how their algorithms run. They're doing that stuff. So Trump does that stuff playing from both Tweety, Tweet, um, Twitter and Facebook. And he plays that, he plays the system, you know, like, like a maestro, really, you know, like, and then he forces the conventional media to then not just Fox News, which at a period of time was ambivalent before it kind of became Trump media um, outfit. Uh, the mainstream media is also giving him like billions and billions of dollars worth of free, you know, just free publicity by accelerating everything he's saying, you know, letting him call into chat shows and stuff like that. And then uh, feeding off of feeding off of the attention he's getting on social media, and then giving him this basically, eventually, this platform, um, both the presidency and his Twitter following, um, and is now totally unrepublican use of it. To, you know, punish um, um, dissenters or anyone who would challenge him. You know, do you, to use that as a direct media channel to enforce sort of the older style, more authoritarian, mob style tactics of punishing supporters and creating incentives for support and suppressing truth and evidence and, and dissent. And, um, so I think he, the new media environment and his is, is really important to think about how his more authoritarian type of politics works. Um, and, and the tactics that he uses as a kind of comedian entertainer, um, stuff to just hold our attention 
and then can dominate um, uh, and dominate uh, dominate everything. I mean, if anything, the biggest liability is that he's so relentless about this, partly because of his own sort of ego and narcissistic needs, um, not just for power purposes, that people are just exhausted by him and his personality. And like one big argument that maybe some people come around is like, yeah, I'm going to vote for him just so we don't have to listen to his tweets anymore. Or his life, so he'll stop tweeting. You know? mm -hmm. So we don't have to have our our minds absorbed around this crazy, you know, this crazy unruly, you know, um, uh, reckless guy. So even people who think they're he's a force for good are sort of just tired of him, you know, um, and sort of a less, yeah. In some ways, he's less effective in that regard by exhausting people than uh, maybe more savvy autocrat would be by yeah being a well, little bit more behind. As far as this is concerned and us being so immersed in, in this social media culture and attracted to kind of the, you know, these, these very superficial things that you're talking about, you mentioned in the book at that time in 2016 that you said Ted Cruz was, quote, smarter and more intelligent than Trump and therefore less appealing or more disturbing, end quote. Um, do you think that this has to do with everything that you're talking about now and kind of how Trump really does, in my opinion, appeal to the lowest common denominator. And, you know, people have talked about, like, how they voted for him simply because he was saying all the things that they, you know, were thinking. And people seem to be less attracted to intellectuals that speak at a higher level and more directed towards the asshole. The bully, the loudmouth, and, and like we said before, the guy that thinks he has or acts like he has the biggest dick. Yeah, so this gets to an earlier bit that I meant to comment on, but I didn't. I didn't mention yet. But well, Cruz, for example, I think he's still playing within the sort of game of the Republican system of norms. Smaller Republican. I mean, he's a, he's a total asshole, and um, and he's not really a very appealing person. No. But he's sort of he's playing he's play acting out like he cares about Republican norms, and then um, and still subverting them in various ways. But he's sort of I think of him as just sort of really Smarmy. cunningly. <laughs> He, well, yeah, he's really smarmy in his presentation as part of his unlikability, but right. he's strategically, he's a very, you know, sort of cunning, extremely cunning and very, he's very strategically intelligent person. But so he's, but he looks manipulative. I remember in 2016, I'm sorry, to, I just want to answer ahead. something real quick. I remember in 2016 when he was running, um, he just like, you, like you're saying, he has that very weaselly, he kind of even looks weaselly quality about him. And I remember at one point when, People were talking about his image alone and the way that he projected himself was just being a turnoff in general. I remember he was on, I think it was Fox News, and and he was wearing like a like the a, a very stereotypical like Texas Southern Western suit, and it just looked so out of place on him. But you could tell that he was just kind of really pandering to what yeah. he thought his demographic was, and and that was yeah. one of those things. Was like, how do people not see through this? But anyway, yeah. sorry. I mean, I think Cruz would do the authority, the game of authoritarian politics if he sort of better knew how to do it. I mean, and maybe he could figure it out eventually and, and be do a cunning job of it because he's just sort of like this more Machiavellian strategic behind the scenes kind of guy. But Trump, I think he's just baked into his nature. I mean, you got it, you know, from his family life and his father and like how he thinks about politics in the world, even when he was flirting with more democratic ideas. I mean, it's just he's and he's uh, I mean, it, it, it's just. And then because of his personality, because of partly because of the narcissism, his just ability to control people's attention and sort of live and just care deeply about how he appeals to other people. I mean, he projects this sort of more this this sense of more authenticity. Like when you're reading him, you're just like there's nothing behind the scenes. 
Um, you're just getting where he's coming from. But that's in part because that's partly true. There's no sort of there's no there there. All he is is how to him is how he appears in the eyes of his supporters and whether they love him or not. And he's ca constantly catering to that love. And he's extremely insecure in his own sense of self behind the scenes. And he needs constant affirmation and, and attention seeking from, you know, from the supporters and immediate immediate um, enablers. Um, and he's a very like weak uh, an insecure person, and then, but then very, very good at catering to meet, help meet his own ego needs um, by presenting himself in this exaggerated um, terms. But that's for his own point of view. But from the from the supporters' point of view, this is the point I didn't I mentioned before. They are getting a certain thing too. They get this sort of simple feeling of simple clarity of of and how they read him, um, and they also get uh, for the authoritarian style. You get the suspension of something that's difficult, like reason, critical argument. No, nah, why can't I just like be all out passionate for what I love and like the thing I'm worried about most, which is, you know, like the, the decline of people, my kind, you know, like, exactly, and, the, exactly. you know, and so he, you get this reassurance. I don't have to justify that. I don't have to think about why that's OK, why that's Democratic or Republican idea, whether that's legitimate. Forget all that stuff. No, I can just, woo, you know, just well, especially when it's fear based. Yeah. And then. And then the fear side of it, too, is just like um, – so you get submission in two ways. You get submission because people are afraid of uh, – and then he makes them feel safer. They're afraid of you know not just foreign enemies or red scare sectors, but now they're afraid of the liberals or the – you know like the people with uh, – who are um, trying to degrade your culture and change and make things – everything worse and – especially Hollywood people, you know, who are constantly try, you know, trying to turn your children into sexually adventurous people or, you know, like whatever, trying to undermine culture norm. They're dominating the culture through media and stuff like that. So that they feel a real sense of dread and threat mm -hmm. and, a, and a personal uh, ch uh, challenge. And then Trump, just if only by being like as equally good at dominating the media, they feel sort of like safer with him, with his voice as the dominant one. But then there's the idea of so there's feeling safer, and then there's also just feeling like, well, I don't have to really think and reason about this. The job of being a sort of democratic citizen that critically evaluates arguments and figure out which what scientists are saying or what the policy arguments are, weighing per you know, I don't have to do that job, and so I can just relax and acquiesce and just be submissive and peaceful and just. Insofar as I have a wondering, yeah, why is that all right? Well, I, then Fox News plays into this or because they're just spinning off what – like any shred of a rationalization that makes sense of the latest like Trump decision or undermines a criticism that might seem like it has something to it. They just give you something like a rationalization and that's all the supporter needs. They're like, oh, yeah, it's just this and they give you the slogans. They pump that stuff out and then people just adapt it because they why they can keep their sort of passive – the sense of passive of sense of being okay and submission. And that goes back to a lot of what goes on in dominance and submission relationships, like um, of all kinds of like gender based ones or actually certain sexual practices like BDSM are based on this. Um, they're all about the, the sub, the submissive person being able to suspend their critical faculties and just have a sense of peace because of their yeah, trust. It's not your job it's to not think. Job. It's not their job to think. They don't have to worry. They can just be peace, just relax. And they experience that as a sense of being safe and peaceful. Mm -hmm. and well, there's, there, so there certainly is. And there's punishment doled out in the practice that Trump um, carries out as far as, you know, when, if there's any sort of dissent at his, at, at his rallies, at his rallies, he encourages violence. 
you know, in, in yeah, that. So I, yeah. So I think that pun the threats of punishment work to a certain extent, but they mostly work to keep elite supporters in line, like in the Congress and within the party. There's a lot of people who like know that they know and they actually hate him and they're not, they don't, they're not lulled like little babies by the Trump, you know, lullaby, but they see his power, his ability to wield power in these unconventional ways, especially over the base. And they know that he can easily tank their like reelection prospects by tweeting out against them. And those threats of punishment, just for them, they work. They they what those people want to hang on to power for the most part, and so he can effectively hold them in line just with threats of punishment. Plus, doling out the political goodies, you know, like judges and tax cuts that they're otherwise wanting. So that's why he's been able to hold the Republican uh, Congress in line. But for his supporters, for a lot of the supporters, um, I don't think the threats of punishment wouldn't be enough. Like they need to be like feel lulled into the sense that like. Uh, you know, the, the big dad, we got a big daddy now and big daddy's going to protect us. And for religious believers, this is like he is their kind of messiah, the, the same way they feel about, you know, God being the big dad, a protector and, and gives them a sense of peace and okay, being feeling OK. Like he's the sort of physical embodiment of that. I mean, then it's sort of remarkable, like how so many evangelicals, for example, could come around on somebody who's obviously so morally decrepit, you know, but. Right. That's what you have to think is they just they already have a certain kind of religious conception that's hierarchical. You know, it's got God at the top and it's got religious authorities working their way down who already perform this sort of pacifying uh, function, giving them, you know, first letting them suspend reason, pacifying them to various degrees. And then Trump just they just he slots into that um, partly by playing into a version of the prosperity gospel. Right. You know, like you don't have to think, but everything's going to be great and blah, 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 all the cheerleading is really goes back to like Norman Vincent Peale and a lot of the prosperity gospel. And Trump himself was exposed to that. And there's a deep current to that in American culture and Christianity. Well, he's selling nostalgia and that that's working for people obviously right now. And, and the idea, it, I mean, he, he does it, I think he does it in a subtle kind of, um, in a way that, you're not really even thinking about it. He just kind of inserts the ideas of the good old days. And I'm going to take us back to the good old days when, you know, you didn't, you could, everybody could leave their doors unlocked and run around and not have to come in until the lights went out, you know? And, and I think that he doesn't blatantly say it, but that's kind of what's, you know, the, the boogeyman that's present, even in the term, make America great again. It's like, make America great. Like, when was, when when are you specifically referencing? It's like implying that America was great at one point, and now it's not because of some boogeyman who came in and made it not great. Um, and Yeah, the, uh, the nostalgia for the mythical past is sort of is standard sort of fascist politics, you know, like that's the same play yeah, that right. went through the fascist movements. And and nowadays the people are employing it like Putin or Orban or, you know, or, or similarly, similarly use it. But Trump's ability to play has, he plays to, to a really specifically American version of it that. Very nationalistic he, version. Yeah. It's why it's why, why we call it a shorthand is like white nationalism and stuff, but to be able to like keep really key into it, in a deep psych subconscious and affirming way. I mean, he, you kind of have to be from it and of it. I mean, cause I don't think just a purely strategic, I mean, someone like Cruz tries to do that too, but he doesn't really tap into it in the same, in the same way that's like sort of deeply convincing and resonating to like the conservative supporters, you know, cause they, but Trump does cause he's, I mean, I think he's a deeply American phenomenon. I mean, he's the, he's the quintessential American asshole because He's he a lot of the the sort of a lot of very deep 
and and problematic strands in American culture, which maybe in themselves aren't necessarily a bad thing, but get wound up, um, or they are a bad thing, but don't necessarily doom the republic. But they all get drawn together in this sort of one man in a in a sort of really awful. Off away. Well, and I think that the difference between a big difference between Trump and Cruz is that Trump really does portray himself as the alpha and Ted Cruz in no way comes across as an alpha male at all. And again, people are attracted to that. And um, I mean, is yeah, I this, think, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. I think, oh yeah. Well, Cruz, I think he's trying, he would try to, if he knew, but he just doesn't know the game. He, he doesn't have the game as sort of in his, in his bones, the authoritarian game. The, the game of authoritarian politics of how you position yourself in uh, um, position yourself for positions of relative status through dominance games. And now it's not just that there's a dominance game that that trying to win. There is a game that Trump, that Cruz is trying to win. But Trump is a master at not only trying to win the dominance game, but constructing everything as a dominance game. Right. And having no awareness of anything else, being totally oblivious or just rejecting or being indifferent to any other sort of possible norm or value that could could shape the things. So that's a way in which he just understands the logic of authoritarian politics in a much more in a much deeper way than someone like someone like Cruz. Yes. Cruz is something like a halfway house, you know, or conniving or more of just a purely strategic kind of guy. I mean, in some way, some some way, a psychopathic um, sort of purely Machiavellian type who doesn't really believe any of the norms, but is just trying to sort of uh, advance self-interest and gain power within whatever the going system is. I think Cruz is closer to that kind of figure, but in some ways he can't do the Trump game as well because he doesn't, he just doesn't know the game of authoritarian politics as, as deeply as Trump uh, does. But Trump has it just baked into his, baked into his bones and, and everyone can see that and like feel it and resonate with it. And, um, and that's why he seems authentic. He's because in that's in that way it is, you know, he doesn't understand anything else. So you know, in, yeah. I get something that, that I, uh, I guess that I would hope that we would wrap up on just to make sure that I got this in before, you know, we would sure. run out of time is, you know, you go down a list in chapter three of your book, you go down a list of derogatory names and disparaging remarks that he assigns to his Republican counterparts back in 2016. And similarly, and more recently during the Iowa caucus, he does the same thing to the Democratic nominees, demeaning his opponents and this sort of thing, his, his, his opposition. And there's no substance to this. There's no true criticism. There's no true policy or, or, or any, any real character there, just name-calling and bullying and making fun of people's physical states. And you, like I said before, you and I can see through this, but it seems to work for him. And uh, I think that, in my opinion, the opposite of assholeness is humility, which is by far my favorite quality in a person. And I think that it's it's difficult to come by and exceedingly difficult to come by. It's a difficult quality to practice, and it requires a great deal of discipline. And so what I'm afraid of is that we've gone so far down this rabbit hole that it's going to be difficult to come back from it and to find somebody that, you know, for the pendulum to swing the other way and be attracted to somebody who does present these, these more um, altruistic, humble qualities. Yeah. Where do you think we're, where do you think we're going from here? Like, is there, is there, do you, what do you foresee or what do you project? I mean, the, the insults are just like schoolyard taunts. I mean, they Mm -hmm. are the way power gets established within schoolyards and kids are subjected to it and it's, and it's terrible, but that's what words do. I mean, even aside from fistfights breaking out or whatever, that's name calling who can, who can, who can land and establish, um, 
like a, a, a name on someone else is a way of positioning themselves. You're dominating them and positioning yourself as above them in the hierarchy and creating some. So that, that's what Trump doing and it works like because we all sort of play into it. It grabs us in a certain way. But now and that's like worked for a really long time and kind of to a surprising degree for the, all the reasons we mentioned earlier. But I think that there's been a change a little bit with the coronavirus crisis breaking out. So you might notice in the White House bringing now that Trump is doing the media briefings, there was one reporter who, who asked him, you know, basically said people are really scared and he cited some sort of alarming statistics about the the risks of death and the rise of thing. And then now, now this is now since this time, this is people are, are like, people, there's already a sort of dam is breaking because uh, Fox News had to shift its, you know, propagandistic suppression of the coronavirus thing, you know, blaming the libs, you know, fake news, blah, 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 democratic plot. To, that whole Trump had to turn the corner on that. Fox News had to turn the corner on that because people are just scared. Right. Um, and they're scared. And now, like now, science is the thing that speaks to their fears. Science, what are the epidemiologists say? What are the real policy experts says? You've got Trump and Fox News spouting fake, literally, literally propaganda, so they don't listen to them. So they're going to pay a lot more attention to the science. So that was already a big, a big shift. Now, a really big, deep, a deep fundamental shift, I think, in our politics. But now, notice what happened in the White House briefing room. Trump tries the traditional play. The reporter asks this question that that would that makes him look bad, bringing up facts. So, and Trump says, so doesn't address the issue like. He's not speaking to people's fears. He goes after the reporter. He calls that, hey, that's a nasty question. This is, you know, you're kind of reporting. You're doing sensationalism. Da, da, da. The people need to that. So he goes after the reporter, right? So he tries to, he sets up a dominance game that's around him and the reporter trying to put the reporter in his place and intimidate them. But now how does that go off? In the past, that's gone off of basically Trump effectively changes the subject from whatever crisis is at stake to why he's the man. Right. And not to be questioned. Or, right? or the but victim. Now, yeah. Or the. Yeah. He's he's the man. And, and and he's the problem is criticizing him. He's the victim. You're being unfair. So. So the problem is you. It's not whatever like the North Korea nuclear crisis or the Iran thing or the Syria thing. You know, it's like he can constantly deflect away from these crises because that's kind of a little bit remote. But with coronavirus, people are like just scared in their bones. Right. They really and they really want to know what like what am I supposed to do? Is are my parents, my granny going to die? Are my children going to die? Am I going to die? You know, how sick are we going to get? Is this really just a flu thing? How bad? How many people are going to die? What's happening with the stock market? Or, you know, am I losing my job? What I just lost my job. Like now we're dealing with like front and center existential issues. And so when Trump then does his old move, which is to sort of change the subject, frame it as a dominance game and then win against the reporter, which he did in that war, but he didn't win in the eyes of the audience because then people are like, wait a minute, like, this guy's just, we need a leader. What, why is this guy, he's doing his typical nasty game, you know, but like, what is he even, right? Uh, so people, the, well, the essentially, game I think, well that they're, I think what they're seeing is that, you know, any other time him uh, kind of sidelining the issue and, and, and not having a, a real good answer to give was okay because they didn't sense a, a direct immediate effect on how that lack of an answer was going to uh, hurt right. them but this is very very you know this is touching everybody's lives and they're they're kind of like left with an unopen an open-ended ambiguous kind of like okay well you know i would have right. appreciated it's such, a scared, it's such a scared people who want to know it's also stock it's also investors and in stock you know in the stock market who are like seeing that he's he does the typical stuff and they're like oh crap this guy is not up on the problem and that's what it takes to get ahead they know they they're tracking the science of pandemics and why being early is means everything and 
you know, to get off the exponential growth curve. And like the, they know that stuff, they hear that stuff, and then they see Trump bumbling around doing the usual stuff, like really, and not to mention having spent like six weeks suppressing the issue, forcing, stopping, you know, uh, government officials from doing the things that they have to do to get ahead of it. And like, all kind of, so, and then, so they vote with their, with their investments or whatever. And then that such a, sends a decisive signal, even in a language Trump can understand. So suddenly that, you know, Trump now sees that he's got to shift his tactics and the, the old game of just reframing things as a dominance game and winning to change the subject just doesn't, doesn't work as well anymore. I mean, it might still work sometimes, but I mean, now the narrative, coronavirus is the narrative and the stock market crash and the crap economy and high unemployment, that's the new narrative. And there's not, Trump can't distract from that narrative. At most, he's behind it. He's not controlling it anymore. That's a sea change, I think, in our politics. Um, and it's sad that this is, it's sad that it, it's a crisis of his own making in some degree because because South Korea had its first day of coronavirus um, uh, confirmation that we did, same time. But then they got ahead of it and did the right things with leadership. And now, you know, and now we're not. Um, but in some sense, it's his own failings have now, like, have, you know, created a reality that he can't keep ahead of. And in some ways, it's just a matter of his own luck for having only, so far, all the crises have been ones of his own making that he could sort of stay ahead of. Um, with gamesmanship, like sort of posturing. But now this is a genuine real, I mean, the others are real crises as well, but he could bury them in this one. You, you, just, you just can't bury. You know what I think a lot of it is, is that any other time he's been able to put a face to to deflect the blame onto somebody or something else. And there's you can't really put a face on this virus. And so like when he's answered a hard question that he doesn't really have an answer to, he can't really divert to anybody else. Because this is yeah, a, a faceless hard to blame thing. The liberals, because like, or the liberal media, because the, they're actually giving a lot of really value. They're giving the information people are really counting on, mm -hmm. relying on. But I actually, get, I saw blame the Chinese. You know, the China virus. That's that's the attempt is yeah. to try to make it into a foreign threat thing. But that's that has just it just doesn't work. So that's the same old trick, right? That we were talking about is you just construct a name that sort of just by virtue of using the name, it deflects. Um, deflects attention from him and his responsibility and blames something else or makes, you know, but it's not working with just trying to, I mean, it's, 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 it's got its own kind of racist character Absolutely. to try to, but, uh, but it, it's just as a tactic, as a dialectical tactic, it's not working the way it used to because people are like, okay, the virus is from China, but everyone knows it's, you know, it's like, Blaming every, isn't going to do any any good. Right no, blame. It's not. You know, at this point, what we need is to stop the death toll. You know, like, uh, and how do we do that without and somehow not tank the economy? Right, it's already tanking. How do we recover? How do we come back? You know, and that's those are really hard problems. Um, that that I mean, I mean, even people. It, it's only the most diehard Trump supporter who's really drinks drinks the Kool Aid. Or my friends, I have good friends who are surfers who who are like, who really drunk the Trump Kool Aid and. Um, and even them, their whole posture about this is moderated so, so much. Like, uh, I mean, it's made a huge difference. Like, they all the, the usual sort of blaming tactics, they they don't go for. They're just much more softened and saying more, much more mainstream type uh, things right now. And and the, the blaming points, you know, don't resonate with even with them as well. Um, um, so, and that comes to their underlying decency as people too. I mean, in some sense, like the change in sort of the palpable, deep awareness of our f mutual physical vulnerability, not just to each other, but to something like a virus. And then the fact that we're all, you know, can all influence each other and we all have to help. And 
that whole frame, which, you know, decent people understand and resonate with that in some sense overtakes and undercuts the, the frame that Trump had managed to establish. Um, and, um, and so, you know, decent people like my friends who are underlying decent people, even if they have like, you know, some, um, well, some flaws like we all do, I'll put it that way. I was talking about my friends, <laughs> uh, pretty bad flaws, but, uh, like we all do, uh, sure. But um, but they you know that sort of the the new context draws that out and it makes the the, the authoritarian style of politics just not work not fly in the way it did and I think it's a it's a really really big change so if we're asking what would change it I think the change already happened and at this point it's sort of like how much can they and Fox News sort of rearrange chairs on the deck Titanic you know um, deck of the Titanic kind of thing yeah. and now the, the the existential moment has completely shifted and I think what's worked in the past isn't going to keep isn't going to keep working interesting okay and again uh, like last time I'd really uh, appreciate if you just let us know where we can find your work and what you have, you've got coming up and uh, yeah so uh, well on my website the UC Irvine website if you just google my name Aaron James then should be the first link that has a list of both professional articles and then pop popular stuff farther down. If you scroll down, um, that includes a documentary that's should that's appearing already in theaters and festivals, but it should be online pretty soon. Documentary assholes, a theory. And then, um, also I have a book coming out, um, co-authored with, uh, Bob Hockett, a financial law ace, and that's books about money and public finance. And it actually explains it, a lot of the stuff that the Fed and even the legislature is now talking about doing, like um, reviving quantitative easing and um, and giving out free money, is stuff that we defend in this book. And we explain from a philosophical point of view, and we explain how we don't have to worry about debt and why how we can manage inflation. So it's actually like perfect timing. The book is perfectly timed in the sense that it'll come out and um, offer a deeper explanation, both philosoph- philosophically and from a finance how do you pay for it point of view about why all this is affordable and and why the the mitigation kind of stuff that we're doing for the economy can be used to renew our democracy and adapt to climate yeah. change and stuff like that. Well, that's that seems very well timed and, and I'd be looking forward to reading that as well. So uh, great. well thanks again and I appreciate that your time again and uh, it's always great speaking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah.